Hey everyone, welcome to Dojo Talks. Today we are talking about Jeremy Silman, who unfortunately it was reported passed away a few days ago um, as we record this. Uh, apparently he was struggling with a long illness. I believe he was 69 years old uh, when he passed. And yeah, today's episode is all about him and his influence on the chess world, in particular on chess writing. Uh, Silman is well known as a chess author. He's written a number of uh, really highly regarded books. Uh, people are probably familiar with How to Reassess Your Chess, uh, The Amateur's Mind, Silman's Endgame book. Um, in fact, we were just talking about our, our own training program and we were thinking about all the authors and we realized that Silman might be the most uh, represented in our program because we've got Reassess Your Chess in there, we've got the Endgame book, and then we've also got his books that he co-wrote with Yasser Sarawan, Winning Chess Strategies, Winning Chess Tactics. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess, maybe how we all knew him. I think we all interacted with him at least a little bit, um, his influence, and um, yeah, uh, really unfortunate. Um, he was definitely one of the, I think, best like teachers uh, from the US. He not only had a bunch of books, he also wrote a bunch of articles for chess.com just for um, for years. It was actually David that, that hired him for that task. And uh, I mean, personally, I, I remember reading those articles growing up and finding them uh, really, really instructive. Like I was a club player at the time when I was reading a lot of his stuff. And yeah, I found it quite, um, quite useful. But um, oh, you're so young, Kostya. You're so young. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's um, that's the thing. I was actually regretted a little bit. I only met Jeremy once, although he was from we're both from California. Um, I remember meeting him at an open tournament many years ago. I think he was just there signing books and, and someone just quickly introduced me to him. I wasn't like strong or anything, but but I already knew who he was. And uh, yeah, super incredibly nice guy. Uh, very funny. As you guys know, his articles also I always found incredibly enjoyable. Um, and I remember reading Reassess Your Chess actually when I was like 15, 1600. I read the... Um, or the third edition. So now there's a fourth edition that people are probably more familiar with. That's like this big, big, hefty book. The third edition was smaller, um, but it was uh, very interesting. I remember reading the intro where he was talking about like the typical club player who is like pretty good at tactics, has no understanding of like strategy or end games. And then like they win some games, they lose some games, they don't really know why. And I'm like, wow, is he just talking about me? <laughs> just, it was a very funny experience reading uh, reading that book. Um, but let me throw it to you guys. When did you first hear about uh, Jeremy? Um, it was pretty early on in my chess career. Um, it was the first year I started playing. Um, and it was maybe the like the first or second chess book I read, the first one that I, you know, remember or think about was Winning Chess Strategies. Um, and I was somewhere between 12 and 1300. Um, and uh, I thought it was like the perfect book for that level. And that's, you know, why it's in there at that level in our, in our program. Because I, you know, immediately I think of that as, and for years, you know, after I was a teacher, after I had been a player and then was like a teacher for years, I would always recommend that to students in the sort of 12 to 1400 range who need a first book on strategy. And uh, we've got some tactics workbooks at lower ratings. But, you know, long ago when I was just teaching on my own before I talked with you guys about it and all, it was basically like, you know, play some games, do some tactics. Once you get to 1200, you get to read Winning Chess Strategy, <laughs> Silman and Sirawan. Um, and so it was like a foundational book for me and for, you know, most of my students as well. <laughs> I passed that on. Um, so that book made a great impression on me. And then I had a friend who read Reassess Your Chess when we were around, you know, 1400, 1500. And I think that sort of like 
the classic thing that book does is it gets players from like 1400 to 1800 in their chess strategic understanding um or maybe even a little bit further than that um and so my friend just swore by that book and um so when i started working at chess.com the first task was to um was to get some regular articles going like a you know weekly columns and he was one of the first two or three people i i hired to do that and um well the articles he wrote were so good i mean it was really it was really tremendously lucky that we got him um i think we started with julio becerra and him and gregory serper who's still writing Mm. or chess.com um these articles he's been writing for like 13 serper's articles also very good and his articles are also so good and with with serper i didn't know what to expect when i hired him like he you know i hadn't read a bunch of his chess books or anything like that but like silman i thought like what a long shot this guy is like you know (laughs) way up here on some on some mountain peak but he was willing to do it and i don't want to go on forever we should you know pass the ball around but I'll say one thing about his articles. Like in theory, that kind of an article could have been, you know, one and a half to two pages long would be a normal length for a for an article. You know, something somebody can read in 15 to 25 minutes, you know, one idea, one or two points about it, and then, you know, something else the next week and you can develop it. And Selman again and again and again would write like 25 page articles. Like, and he, and I was looking through some of my emails this morning and there was like email after email where he's like, Hey, I think you're going to like this article. Actually, I went whole hog and decided to, and basically he wrote like, you know, um, like a mini book, like a treatise, right? Like he was like, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of them, like I, I sent in a question for him and his, and then he gave an answer about planning and his answer about planning was like, here are six games like showing like when somebody has like a grand plan and like at what moment in the game they had the grand plan and it was mostly his games because he knows them really well right it's like here it's like move 18 i figured everything out this is how the game goes it all like goes according to plan you know and then here are some games where it's like you know two to three move little things going on and then he comes around it's just it's immense i mean it's like you know i asked a question about one game of mine how could i have made a plan in one position and he's like Here's a short book about planning and chess. And he just, you know, was publishing you know, these little books like every week. <laughs> just amazing. Phenomenal. So much effort and such high quality. Yeah. Yeah. In my case, it's a little different. You know, one thing that's really interesting is, so Silman's born 1958. And so this is the generation above me. These are the people that I played against when I was a kid. And he doesn't write the books until a time when I'm kind of past the, the the people he's marketing it for, right? He's really marketing it for like the, I would say the 1500 is the golden range for who he's marketing it for. But what's interesting is before he wrote the books, this interesting thing was going on where, and I only was reflecting on it today, where in the 80s, there was a short time where this amazing magazine was published called Inside Chess. And this was Yasser Sarawan's attempt to um, have what um, the Dutch had in New and Chess, right? To have this American uh, magazine that was good in contrast to Chess Life, which has always been terrible. And I've been lobbying for that. For a chess. Our last podcast, I was lobbying still for Chess Life to okay, be gotten okay, out of. Not the time, Chess. <laughs> not the time. Anyways, but, but it's important to say is that what that group of people did with um, that magazine, it was Sarawan, Donaldson, Silman, and a couple other people, they got together and they produced this very high quality magazine that I was definitely, I and other players were very hungry for because we didn't have really strong content coming to us. We just had like chess life, you know, there were books, but in terms of magazines, we really didn't have it. So it was this beautiful- And what was chess life like, Jesse? Oh, dude, it was the same. It was the same then as it was now. There was nothing. There was very, very little in that. Um, in any case, so um, that was my first experience. And then when you think about it, it's like, oh, that crew 
of Donaldson Sarawan and Silman, you could maybe think about Watson coming out of that same era, produced a whole variety of chess literature that uh, not only for the US, but for the whole world, really has become very popular. We had, we're talking about winning chess tactics by Sarawan, you know, Silman co-wrote that. And then, you know, um, let's say Shagar Shah from India, Reassess Your Chess is one of his favorite books. So he's promoting that to this huge Indian audience. So that little crew in Seattle there, right, they were in different spots, but they were writing that, you know, that was the, you know, core group that created so much material coming out and it's still so influential now. Yeah, no, I feel like um, worldwide, I was uh, yeah, just seeing on Twitter and yeah, people from like around the world were talking about his books and their uh, their influence on on them. Um, so, yeah, I feel like he had a tremendous impact, not just like on on chess writing, because I think his, his books and writings were very good. Also, just like in the way people um, think. Uh, in fact, I feel like this is one of the things people sometimes critique him for is that club players um, will often use his writings and then maybe take too much of like a heuristic approach to the game mm. where they're just trying to figure the position out, you know, just based on a few key factors and try to figure out a move based on based on that. I will say, though, like the um, I mean, I don't know for sure. I, for me, like the, the framework of imbalances, I feel like this was introduced by Silman. Yeah. And that's definitely something that informed like my own chess understanding. Um, I'm reading in his books, he had, he had this approach to chess where, you know, if you're trying to evaluate a position or, um, you know, figure out what to do next, it's like very useful to assess some key factors in the situation, things like king safety, material, peace imbalances, like good knight versus bad bishop, pawn structure, and then kind of like trying to evaluate all of these elements as you form um, a plan of, of what to do next. And yeah, for me, that framework was incredibly useful. I mean, these days, I don't think I follow his approach to the T, but I have kind of like a similar way um, that I judge positions. I basically look at at four elements, right? King safety, material, peace activity, and structure. And then I try to evaluate all those factors mm. together. And that helps me figure out, okay, who's better and why and how much. And it's not even just about like who's better necessarily. It's also about knowing what both sides are playing for. So one side might have a better structure, but a weak king. And so they understand, okay, they need to trade queens, go into the end game and uh, just rebuff the attack and then they'll be fine. And then vice versa for the other side. So I always felt like this approach was very, very useful for folks um, to kind of give themselves a sense of, yeah, what to do in the, uh, in the position. Um, can remember? I interject a short comment yeah. about that approach and then you can keep going? Sure, sure. So I think basically that approach is really helpful if you're in a position where you don't have a bunch of knowledge already. And so the higher you get, the less you need to do that because you see a certain position and you're like, oh, black's pawn storming the white king and the king's Indian attack. You don't have to go through the whole thing, right? So as you advance, there are more and more positions where you just already know what the ideas and plans and strengths and weaknesses are. But even at our level, I think, if you run into a position where your instincts don't just sort of tell you, like, here's what's going on, here's what they're trying to do, here's what I'm trying to do. If you get into something where you like really deep and thought like, man, should I trade my bishop for that knight? Like, you know, is there really any breakthrough that I want to do? You can go back to that approach still. And I think, um, you know, it can still be used anytime you're in unfamiliar waters. Yeah. Maybe uh, um, let me give a brief synopsis sure. of how I view the philosophy. And then we can kind of talk about it. maybe even by critiquing it might help flesh it out because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in the philosophy and it's been so influential that I want to just give a little nutshell of it so that people can understand what it was or is. So first, the theory of imbalances. Now, let me say as a teacher, when you teach somebody, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to be shouting out at moves. And then important to do, and I do this too, is I say, shut up. <laughs> Shut up, don't tell me about your stupid moves, boss. I don't want to hear about your stupid Great moves. Teacher. I want you to tell me 
what you see happening in the position. And so the first thing about the imbalances is just a shut up moment. Don't talk to me about your moves. Tell me what you see happening in the position. So let's talk first about what he sees, Silman, as the imbalances. Superior minor piece, okay. Pawn structure, space, material, who's got more of it. Control of a key file, control of like a hold or a weak square, development, initiative, he separates those two. King safety and statics versus dynamics. We could talk at length about those and we maybe we will, but I wanna first do a nutshell of this. Then there's like a thinking approach. And I call this the thinking of the approach of the stoner generation, or we could call it more charitably the planning variation. So first of all, you stop, you don't think about the moves yet, and you figure out what the imbalances are. You try to name them, okay? And then you next step is you wanna ask, which side are you attacking? Are you playing on the queen side, king side? What are you doing? And then you do this amazing thing that I remember so many players. This is like, I want to stress, this is not something that Silman created. This was like in the air, in the air when I was coming up, is that you fantasize about what you are trying to do. I had a, a, a friend uh, who was a master, Steve Stubenrauch, back in the day, and he would always be like, I want you to dream about where this knight wants to go. <laughs> Very helpful, but it's a little bit like it, it's this stoner generation thing where you're fantasizing about what what is going to happen. And then you ask yourself, is this plan achievable? That's step four. And only then are you allowed to start looking at moves. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about thinking about that process is when I call it the stoner generation or the, the planning generation, is this is all pre-computer. And the thing that the computer changes is it starts showing that these big plans aren't actually so realistic because move by move, things are actually changing far more than you realized, right? There's far more opportunities that are happening that the computer's shouting at you and being like, Baus, your big fancy plan in the sky, I don't know. And then you look then at the difference between players, say, of Silman's generation, my generation, and then the kids, um, is that they are playing move by move. And a lot of the old timers still are thinking in these grandiose plans. And that hit me clearest when I was doing um, commentary 2019 pre-pandemic. And Darwin Yang said, um, this looks like a game from, or he was talking about a senior game. Wasn't that a wonder? A wonder, Liang? A wonder, excuse, 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 sorry. A wonder said, um, this this looks like a game from the 90s. <laughs> a game from the 90s. He named it so clearly. And I was like, what? And then we had that whole discussion. And I realized, right, this is a generational shift between the planning generation and the move by move generation. Um, so it's important to understand, I think, when you read the books or appreciate where Silman's coming from, that so much of it is like a philosopher's approach to the game, which I'm really into. I'm really into, I think that if you want to understand the game, you must first shut up about your moves because the moves will be shouting at you and you got to shut it down because the beauty of it is if you can slow it down and ask yourself what is going on in the position, then you will be on the path to discovering some moves that you weren't considering before, right? That's when like, oh, some ideas start happening. Um, and it's also a pre-blitz uh, way of thinking of the game. You do not have time in blitz to have that moment. And a lot of things, what happens in blitz is you are shutting that philosophical ability, you're shutting it down, right? One of the arguments, many arguments about playing blitz. Again, I'm not, you know, you know I'm not saying you don't have, you can't play blitz, but you just recognize that when you do play blitz, you shut down let's call it the Silman or philosophical approach to the game, which will help you understand what possible plans might be. Okay, anyways, that was my nutshell of what I think the Silman chess philosophy is. Yeah, that's actually quickly on the blitz thing. I feel like I have the opposite approach where my instinct is to just try to play like by hand, like according to Silman, like, okay, I have a mm -hmm. good piece. I'm gonna try to maximize this. 
And then right. what I don't have time for is like the concrete calculation to kind of figure out. Um, but that, that was a really good point you brought up. I remember I think I first read about that from Silman um, when he was talking about planning and he suggested to like, you know, imagine all your pieces on the best squares. Like you're not allowed to capture anything, but if you could just put your pieces anywhere, right. where would you put them? And then that's actually very useful for coming up with like maneuvers or plans or sometimes mm. just thinking about this immediately shows you like, oh, I have a really bad night on A3 that is actually very hard to get anywhere. And then you immediately realize, yeah, I have to fix this piece. Um, also interesting what you said about, yeah, people just first starting off with moves. It's kind of funny how that happens. Yeah, first people just look at a position and they just come up with a move and they're like, I don't know, I would play H3 here, or I would play A3 here. And then there's not really a deep think beyond that. And then they learn about the imbalances and, and, and this approach. And then I feel like you have to kind of break out of that and then get back to that concrete nature where it's not, because mm -hmm. what I see a lot when I teach like club players is, you know, they might have a very sharp position and then they're making a decision just based on one or two positional factors. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't want to double my pawn, so I didn't do this thing. And it's like, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on all over the board that has to be paid attention to. And it's all, it's all very concrete. You know, it, it, it doesn't always just get simplified down to um, an easy decision. Um, so, well, a couple of years ago, I included Silman's book, Reassess Your Chess, in a video I did that was about the most overrated chess books. And... Uh -huh. I felt, I felt bad about including his book because I really like him and I really liked him as an author. But mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to, to bring this up because like my reason for including that book was, you know, I was going on Reddit and like all these online places and people were kind of treating it as like the end all be all of positional chess. Like this is the only mm -hmm. book you ever need to read and then you'll understand chess perfectly. And to me, that felt like a bit of a, a bit of an overrating. Like I think it's like an amazing book, but yeah, there's like there's a lot of different approaches to the game and it doesn't have to be, let's say, so um, regimented. Did you recently get mated? Well, it's time to join the Chess Dojo training program. Or maybe you just enjoy this fine content. Give us some money on the Patreon. I need to keep the lights on. And with inflation, it's really hard for Kostya to be buying that avocado toast. Um, one thing I'll jump in with is that one of the things that threw me off initially was that I have a I have my own dogma, if you will, that I really I still rarely like. And my personal dogma, it maps on it can map onto what Silman's saying, but here's my personal dogma is that there are three dimensions to the game. Three is a mythical number. It's very nice. It's one of the reasons I like it. Where we have material, which is one of his time we can talk about how his he views time and then quality of position right and quality of position is going to encompass all of these things he's saying like space and structure right king safety much simpler <laughs> for me to imagine and plus i love the idea that you can translate one dimension to another so for example you can say that a pawn is worth three tempi for him, you know, and, and so it's like this plethora of things that he's got always turned me off. But I want to stress that, like, if you want to, you can map my philosophy onto his if you just combine, like, development initiative into his factor of time. And then, of course, there's material. And then everything else is quality of position. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I also want to talk about his Endgame book a bit because his Endgame uh -huh. book is well known um, for the way it breaks down the chapters by rating. And he basically says, here are all the Endgames you need to know up to 600, up to 800, up to 1,000, all the way up to uh, 2,200, which I always thought was just a fantastic way of breaking things down. And very few Endgame books, like I can't even think of another Endgame book that has this same approach of like, here are the Endgames you need to know up until this level. Now we disagree with like some of where he put stuff. Like I think he's he was saying like you don't really need like bishop and knight mate until like way later. And mm. I don't think we agree with like all of his you know 
positioning. But but that approach, I think, is very useful for folks, you know, especially if they're on the lower side and they don't know like which end games to study. Well, it's like right there. It's like just read chapter one, read chapter two, and then you're um, you're done. Um, and then the way he just, explains just the end general. games, I thought was pretty good. Just in general, chess material is too rarely arranged in terms of like level. Just mm -hmm. Very, very rarely. It's something we've we've brought up before, and it's something that we really try to provide with the structure of our uh, training pro program. Even before we had the program, when we talked about books, we sort of like tried to say when we mm -hmm. made just like the dojo book list, we tried to say here are the books that are for you know this rating range and this rating range and that rating range. So. I think that he does it so explicitly is is a very strong mm -hmm. uh, teaching move, um, uh, which also signals just in general some of his strengths as a teacher, which we'll talk about more and more. But you wanted to now tell us about the explanations, right? Yeah, I, in the in-game book, I, I found his explanations um, quite quite useful actually one that like yeah I, like you okay, still remember is um, you know we all know this endgame about how to win with the uh, outside pass pawn. And he calls it, I believe, the fox in the chicken coop. <laughs> he uses this analogy of like, if you're trying to, uh, you know, if you have a fox uh, dealing with your chickens, it creates this big distraction, you gotta go deal with it. And then the rest of your barn is open, or the rest of your farm, right, is, is open for, uh -huh. for thieves, right? And this like very easy analogy to, to understand how to win a king and pawn end game where you have an outside pass pawn. You use the pawn as a distraction, and then your king goes to the other side um, of the board. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, I mean, I, I we talked about his articles already, but yeah, I was reading those like every week and every time like the topic was interesting. One of the most um, memorable points for me that he made was he was talking about how there's kind of like two key ways of, of playing for the win. He was telling this story about how he he needed to get like six out of six or something to get an IM norm, or maybe his final IM norm for, for the title. And he was saying like, you know, the typical approach players take if they're trying to win a game is they sacrifice, they gambit a pawn, they sacrifice material, they go for the attack. Um, but the other way to play for the win is to accept material. It's to take material and try to hold on to it. And he told this uh, great story about how, like, in, in six straight games, he just decided to take everything his opponents gave him. <laughs> and he won all, all six games based, based on that, which is a very, um, yeah, very unique approach that I hadn't, I hadn't considered up to that point. Mm -hmm. One thing I, I want to mention that is I just want to say I admire about the guy, and I, I feel like he created... Um, a path. So when I was coming up, you know, if you, if I, if I had said something like, oh, I want to play chess for a living, that everybody would have shouted, everybody shouted me down. It was like the most sneers, <laughs> sneers, you know, just like, get out of here, buddy. What are you talking about? And what I want to stress is like in the generation where he was coming up, born in 58, it was really a hard slog. We're talking poverty. And you look at people in that generation, there was not a lot of money uh, at all. You know, there's no teaching online. You're teaching like kids who might not even want to be taught, you know, uh, and making money off chess books has never really been a thing. And so what I want to say is, first of all, I admire that he started chess late like I did, 12. Right. So kind of in a similar way, he was able to play uh, some nice tournaments, have some nice results. Right. If you've been my generation, probably would have become a GM. And um, I know from personal experience the poverty that the dude had to go through and to keep pursuing what he loved and was interested in. Fantastic. And I want to also say then that he kind of made it work. And one of the things he then did, which I think is very um, admirable, is he then was the first to essentially self-publish his books, right? So if you publish chess books, you know, have a really hard time making money, you publish through a publisher, they're going to take it all. And dude was like, no, <laughs> I'm going to found my own little press. I'm going to do this myself. 
and I'm going to have complete creative control over the process. Fantastic move, which I feel um, even now pe people haven't fully appreciated, right? But but some of us, like our, our friend, uh, some of us have, like Eugene Perelson, our friend, he also self-published the, the recent book, Evaluate Like a GM with uh, Nate Solon. And it's like, that is, in my mind, a really beautiful model that comes ultimately out of a period of poverty in chess where it was like, dude didn't just want to uh, be teaching chess to kids at schools if he weren't into it. He wanted to have a creative output and to, to do this work. And he ultimately made it work in a time when now it might seem like, oh, he got rich doing these books, yada, yada. At the time, it was not clear. It was not clear that this was going to have any payoff at all. I really yeah. want to stress that as part of the life story that I find admirable. That's just, yeah, no, now self-publishing is very popular. I mean, yeah. yeah. He must have had some confidence in the quality of um, – his teaching materials, even though when I talked to him, he was always very humble about it. You know, he never acted like he was like a big deal or anyone was lucky to talk to him or anything like that. Like, <laughs> well, he was a real chess player. You know, he, he got it. <laughs> He's like, yeah. We're all just like, that. what I want to say about his explanations, which coach you mentioned, um, I want to say like, I think that he's very good at writing stuff that people at different levels can actually uh, enjoy or learn from at the same time, you know, because, you know, at some point with his with his column, he was answering questions and he could have a question from a twelve hundred come in and he'd write an answer. And especially when you're writing, you know, a front page article for chess.com, it's great if you can hit multiple different levels. Right. Like we don't want. Well, it's not that we don't want it. There's a place for everything. But we wouldn't publish, you know, seven days in a row esoteric articles for 2400s, nor would we publish seven days in a row of like different ways to avoid scholars, mate, right? Because it's just going to miss too much of the audience, right? And um, he's really good at writing something that's going to be of interest and have something at, at many different levels. Um, you know, I wrote in just like a viewer, right? <laughs> like... Mm -hmm. Here's my question, Mr. Silman. You know, I was playing this position and I got here and I didn't know what to do. And here's what I thought about. Yeah. And he answered it, you know, and, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other readers who were rated a thousand points below me found the article interesting as well. Right. So um, I think that was something that he was that he was really good at. And in general, I think that's something that. I mean, I don't know who invented what or who was the first person to do X or Y, but I think in general, that's something he brought to chess writing and maybe a lot of other people at the same time. But something he brought is, you know, thinking about the audience, like not just you figure out some chess thing and then you sort of write out an explanation or analysis of it or some variations or whatever. There's great chess authors who came before him and a lot of times they're great chess authors for people who are already into chess. And it's just, you know, the poetry and, and the beauty of the game. You know, I love Alyekin's writing and Tal's writing. But but Silman has good, like, teaching writing. You know what I mean? Like, he's, like, he's in, Tal didn't write his book. Like, this is how you would, it's not the most obvious way you would teach a class of, you know, eight-year-olds or whatever, right? But but Silman really brings in sort of, like, a, a teaching style of of communicating with people. And um, I think that was like a really big strength. And, you know, you can see how many people read his books. And I think that's a big reason for it. Yeah, if I remember correctly, like he would write an article about some some topic and then there'd be like six examples. And then a, he always had a bunch of exercises. I remember like not even finishing the exercises to his art because there's just too many. <laughs> I was like, right, I, I can't do it. And I remember he would... Um, he his articles get a lot of comments and then sometimes someone would bring up some position like oh how about this position like what you wrote doesn't apply here and then he would write an entire part two addressing yeah. like this person's question and then maybe showing like the opposite side of the the coin when like the yeah. imbalances like don't play um in someone's favor actually um one book i just remembered that i really appreciated for this approach was um 
John Nunn's understanding chess move by move. Because the way he wrote that book is he would, um, every game would be dedicated to a certain idea um, or principle, but then the next game would kind of show the opposite end. So for example, uh, one game would show how to win with a space advantage, and then the next game would show how to exploit your opponent's space advantage, or when one side overextends, how to kind of like combat mm -hmm. that. And that that approach was always uh, felt incredibly useful to me to see that like, yeah, things are rarely so simple. It's like you have to understand both sides of the position. I also feel like a critique that people often had, which I felt like was kind of unfair um, and, and that I still see to this day is like people will sometimes like engine check the books or engine check the positions and be like, oh, the engine points out this thing or this thing. And it's like, I always felt like this was kind of missing the, the point because it's like, as Jesse brought up earlier, Silman like provides like a starting framework to think about the position. Obviously he understands chess is a concrete game, right? He's not just gonna blindly make positional moves without looking for tactics or calculating anything. And it's like, even if the, yeah, concrete details of the position lead elsewhere, it's still really, really important to kind of start off with that like solid positional understanding of what's happening as like a starting point. What both sides are playing for? What are the dreams for both sides? And um, actually, you still hear this um, if you watch Yasser Sarawan do commentary. He'll always say stuff like, on a good day, I want to get this, this, and this, right? Or if I could get all my dreams in the position, I'd be able to do this, this, and this. And it's like, that's a great way, I think, to just start approaching the position before you get into the weeds, start calculating and figuring out you know, exactly how to execute um, what you want to do. Uh, at the same time, it's important for players not to get too hung up on that like we mentioned earlier, you don't want to just use the imbalances and then just play moves and then not really try to think ahead or think about like exactly how the opponent is going to respond. Um, and then at a certain point, you know, the position is just going to blow wide open. It's just going to get very complicated. And then, yeah, you really have to try to calculate as best you can. You can't really just rely purely on positional principles to decide on uh, a single move. Um, yeah, or not at all, right? Then that part's behind you. Like you did that, you did it correctly, you created the crisis you expected to, and now your opponent is, you know, trying to fight their way out, and you've you've got to win from your strong position, but with pure calculation. Yeah, it was funny. I remember going through some of his like annotations, and um, he would focus a lot on like the strategic side and and showing exactly how he like managed to. Um, get an advantage and then i feel like sometimes you would kind of skip over the last eight to ten moves of the game where the opponent starts like throwing all their pieces and it gets like kind of crazy but it's clearly like desperation and then he just kind of yeah, yeah okay it's just simple like boom 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 and then you know up a piece <laughs> it's just like just kind of like glossing over like the very you know tricky concrete part of the of the game but that wasn't you know the focus of uh of his teaching of course yeah he published an article in uh, Chess Life for a while, right, where he would have readers, uh, where, where he would do, I think, basically pieces that together became the amateur's mind. And it was sort of like, here's the thought process of a 1400 on this position. Here's the thought process of a 1650 on this position and really like go in depth on people's thought process. Another thing which maybe wasn't talked about too much in, in chess literature before him. Like people would tell you, here's the right move. Here's why here's like a good move that isn't right. But the idea of like, here's what you might think. Here's what three different students of mine thought on this position before hmm. that was like less done. Right. I mean, there's Kotov's book where he sort of tells you the thought process of a GM, but I don't know that it gets into much like here's the process of a 1200 and here's where to tweak it or anything like that. It's just, again, like laying out what's correct um, without taking into account where are you at? How do I meet you there? And how do I talk about it? Um, I don't know how many people here will know a, a product that used to be on chess.com and actually it predates chess.com, but there was a product called chess mentor mm -hmm. and that's actually the product that previously had the chess.com domain name, little trivia, before chess.com uh, became chess.com. 
And so when chess.com got the domain name, they also picked up this program that used to be sold, sold on like disks that would be mailed to your house. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what they were interested in was the domain name, not this extra product. But actually in that product, there were some incredible courses that Jeremy Silman had written. Right. And the way Chess Mentor was designed to work is it gives you a position, asks you a question, and whatever move you put in, the author has pre-put in like the feedback they would give to you if you were in a private lesson with them and you suggested that move, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So imagine I use a position in 15 different private lessons with 15 different students, right? And so I like really know like what they're saying about the position and then I sort of codify all of that. And um, it also, if you play the right move, it tells you why it's right in case you got it by accident, right? And it's got alternate correct moves, so it's not just there's one solution always, right? The whole thing, um, I mean, I don't know how how much of a role Jeremy Silman had had in designing how the thing worked, only that a bunch of their courses had been done by him, so he had some significant involvement. Um, but this was very much, you know, into his, in, in the same development of where chess teaching could go. Um, now a lot of those courses are hidden within, like, chess lessons on the yeah. chess.com website if someone wants to try to find them and often they have videos that like tell you the answer and then they ask you the questions which kind of spoils the whole idea but anyway if you want to try and find those things i think you can still find them i really liked a course he did called roots of positional understanding um which was really difficult for me because my strategic chess was just not that good even at like 23 2400 when i when i first looked at it um, and I think it's designed for, you know, 16, 1700 players. And I was kind of ruefully realizing that it was at my level. Um, <laughs> and I had to work through the whole thing instead of just sampling it to see what our users were were doing. But um, you, that was something that's like really, really thoughtful about your audience, about who you're teaching to. And it's the kind of thing that a chess writer could not produce unless they'd probably taught a lot of lessons themselves, right? So... Mikhail Tal, you know, one of my maybe three favorite chess writers, maybe he didn't teach a lot of private lessons, right? So he like wrote a certain kind of great book. But you couldn't write what Silman wrote without having done the masses of private lessons that, that the three of us have done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can, you know, if we wrote something, it could be in that sort of direction because we have that experience of like, trying to meet students where they are and figuring out what's going on in their head and how they came up with, you know, A3 stopping night before in a position where both sides were attacking the kings on the king side. <laughs> you know, so um, I think that's another interesting piece of, of his of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just want to echo that people can still find a lot of his lessons on, on chess.com. They're um, like basically like courses you get a bunch of positions, you're asked to solve them. And um, those are, I, I believe, premium. But his articles, I, I believe, are, are free. And the articles um, are free, for sure. Yeah, I, I would. But there's I like, would, you know, full endgame courses and positional treatises on there by him. It, right. Within that format where like whatever you get wrong, he'll he'll have written like, a you know, a, a detailed direction, sort of understanding where you're at and guiding you. Yeah. And his stuff was very good. I remember like going through some courses and then, you know, they would cover a couple moves, but most moves that weren't the solution, the response would be like, mm, that's not quite right. Try again. <laughs> yeah, you but, have to you have know, a default have... response at some, like you cover, depending on the, the author, right? They'll cover, you know, the three most likely moves that they think a student would give or the 10 most likely moves that a student might offer them. But at some point, you're not going to cover every legal move. So there's yeah. a default response for the last 10 or 20 legal moves that you haven't covered. Um, But I would, yeah, I would definitely strongly encourage people to check those out and to, to just go through and, and read his articles because they were essentially just, I mean, equivalent to like material that you would find in books. Um, I think people shouldn't be dissuaded by the fact that it's free. It's still like extremely high quality (laughs) content. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he worked way too hard on those. <laughs> he reduced his hourly wage, you know, from something, you know, reasonable and, and competitive to a tenth of that with, with, with the work he put in. All right. 
Um, let's see, folks. We got to wrap it up soon here. We're on the clock. Um, anything, any final points either of you guys wanted to, to bring up? I guess I want to say, um, you know, on reflection that it's interesting how any teacher, right, their influence will slowly wane out. And it's so funny that David has like showing us the secret spots where Silvan is still around if you dig for him. Um, you know, obviously he's very influential with the books, but let's just say the obvious, the kids aren't reading books these days. We have the books in our program and we're kind of forcing it on, on people. And I think that's a good thing that we're forcing it. But it's this fascinating thing where if he were around now, right, or, you know, of this generation, he'd be doing YouTube videos, right? And that's, or, or some kind of video production, right? So it's this generational shift and I like this memorial we've done because right at a, at a certain level, like it's just important to just like wit, bear witness to him and his generation. Let's actually, I wanted to put Jack Peters as somebody of his generation. I feel like mm -hmm. did a very similar thing. Jack Peters did the LA Times column forever, you know, and did a variety of chess writing, teaching as well. And, and I feel what I have in common with that, those group of guys is right. I've taught chess forever. Right. And like David was saying, there's a certain amount of wisdom of being able to address different kinds of generations. Anyways, I love the tribute we did. And I hope players of this generation, let's say if you're a teenager watching this, you just realize like, oh, this was what chess used to be like. This was a whole different uh, struggle back in the day than it is now. Yeah, actually, I, I think they announced like last week or maybe two weeks ago that they were going to put his books onto uh, onto Chessable. Um, he's one of the authors that had pretty much nothing on Chessable. Um, right. I'm not sure exactly why, but um, yeah, it sounds like his books are now going to be coming to that platform. So hopefully they get introduced to uh, to more people. Um, yeah. And, uh, the chess mentor courses have something in common with the Chessable format. Right, right, right. Right. Um, Yeah, um, I I have like a tiny little story that's that's hilarious, um, okay. and then it's very short but funny. Uh, and I thought, well, why not have something funny in here? And then I have one other thought about like the legacy or whatever. Um, but uh, okay, so here's here's the story. I was playing the U.S. Open and I got paired with John Donaldson, and uh, I went down to the bookstore. It's very old school for some people, Jesse's saying, not reading books. I went down to the bookstore to find a book on the Accelerated Dragon, which Donaldson had played against me previously. And uh, the best book I could find in there was The, the Accelerated Dragon by I.M.'s Jeremy Silman and John Donaldson. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, well. So I, you know... I, I get the book, I open it up, I like read this, like I'm like reading through different parts. I'm trying to find a position where like they say Black's doing great and I disagree with them, right? Uh -huh. I mean, I wasn't like a genius, but I mean, I think that approach makes sense still. So yeah. anyways, that's what I was kind of looking for. Like, is there something where, you know, because if you try to play through every single line and find a move that's better, right? That's that's a lot of work, right? But if you can just find a position that they actually want to play to that position with you and like it's going to be good for you. So I'm looking for something where I disagree on the evaluation and finally I found something. And so I go to the game and I play the variation and uh, John seems very uncomfortable and like, you know, slowly plays down their line and I get this like great position and he's like suffering all game, but he was like a better player than me and I, I think the game ended in a draw. I don't think I... I don't think I managed to win. I don't even remember. But I had a great position the whole time. And it was like all this suffering. And then afterwards, we're like talking about it. And I was like, yeah, I like, you know, I think this position is really good. Like, I have to admit, I looked at your book and, you know, yeah. all this. And John just goes, something along. I mean, John is so mild-mannered. I don't think he would have even said, damn it. But he said something like, you know, like, like shucks or whatever, you know, like, yeah. shucks. Like, Selman wrote that chapter. Like, what was he <laughs> thinking with that position? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jeremy wrote that chapter. What did he get me into? 
Uh-huh. It's just very hilarious. You know, obviously, like, you know, buddies have these different connections and things that come up through their lives as as chess players crossing each other again and again, right? And I could imagine one day Kostya plays a game against somebody and follows something that he remembers I told him, like, on a train ride or something. And then, <laughs> like, he gets beat and, like, is like, God damn, Proust. Like, what was, <laughs> what was that stupid idea? You know? So... So that was that was funny um and that segues into what i want to say is like it's interesting what jesse said about the inside chess magazine that there was this like group of collaborators right who are working together and producing great stuff and mm-hmm. not only did selman produce great stuff but if you talk about the people that he multiple times collaborated with like donaldson and like zero these guys are also people who contribute so much as you know chess writers and educators um in the country so just as you sometimes see a little group of players come up somewhere together and then they become better players because they've got mm-hmm. someone to bounce stuff off of, it seems like also not only were they all good chess players, right, but but somehow together they were working on or thinking on how to be good chess teachers and chess writers and mm-hmm. and uh, something sort of bubbled together there and you, you can become a better uh, chess writer if you hang out with other chess writers. Oh, and one last thing. He's written a novel, which yeah. is called something like Autobiography of a Goat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's just out there for anyone who wants to know yeah. other sides of Jeremy. Um, I'm really sad today because in my personal interactions with him, which were which were many, I mean, he was really, really uh, wonderful to me and, and a special and, and interesting person, like very, very interesting to talk to. So, um, if anyone's interested in like the non-chess sides of him, which we're not going to get into in a chess dojo podcast, that would be a fun starting off place. As Jesse said, the poverty, the, you know, what was the chess world like 30, 40 years ago when it was hard to even find a book, much less a YouTube video. Yeah. All right. Great. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks folks for uh, listening and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone.